This is Instant Coffee, a new podcast brought to you by the LSE Middle East Centre and produced by me, Nadine Almanaspi, and me, Ribal Sleiman Haider. We know you didn't expect us back until the new year, but we couldn't resist putting out this special episode about food, our favourite topic. On this episode, Centre Deputy Director Robert Lowe talks to two of the biggest Middle East food experts, Claudia Rodin and Sami Zubeida. We were hoping to have them live as part of our 10-year anniversary celebration this month, but that unfortunately had to be cancelled. We are still honoured to have them together on our podcast, sharing their amazing wealth of experience. Claudia Rodin is cultural anthropologist and food writer. Sami Zubeida is Emeritus Professor of Politics and Sociology at Birkbeck University of London. Over to you, Bob. Hello, Claudia. Hello, Sami. Welcome to Hi. the Middle East Centre podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we had, of course, very much hoped to have you in person um, at an event at LSE with a, in a large lecture theatre and, and serving food afterwards, indeed, as well. But this is what we the best we can do in the circumstances. But we're really looking forward to hearing from you both this morning in this podcast about food. Perhaps we might start on, on the globalization of Middle Eastern food. Um, it's something you've both observed in your careers. It's something you've both written about. Um, would you like to start by talking about this phenomenon of how Middle Eastern food has entered what Sammy calls the global gastronomic playground? Well, uh, we can all see how Middle Eastern and North African food has become part of our modern British eclectic cuisine. We can see it in restaurant menus, you can see it in magazines, on TV, on cooking competitions. It is everywhere. Uh, yes, and it is also uh, something that's happened all over the world. Uh, three years ago, I asked a friend in LA about Middle Eastern food in America. And he said, he wrote, hummus has become a factor dip everywhere. Feta, falafel, barbaranoush are words that are firmly lodged in our vocabulary, much like pizza or croissant. Now, what is happening is while Turkish, Lebanese and other Middle Eastern restaurants, they serve the same traditional standard menu of grills and meze, Israeli chefs, inspired by Otolenghi, they feel free to do their own take on tradition and to pick elements from all the Sephardi and Mizrahi diasporas. They use Shug from Yemen, Harissa from Tunisia, Dukkha Do'a actually from Egypt, preserved lemon from uh, Morocco, Tahina sumac and pomegranate molasses from Syria, orange and almond cakes from Spain, at a time when a new global food culture that encourages experimentation and invention, chefs and food writers in the Anglo-Saxon world and everywhere else have become keen to use spices and aromatics, and they have appropriated the Middle Eastern fusion nouvelle cuisine and made it their own. Mm. Yes, well, um... Certainly, you know, and of course you get all kinds of innovations, not only in restaurants, but on supermarket shelves. Um, you see the great, the amazing uh, variety of hummus that you get in Stainsbury's and Waitrose and what have you. And I was especially intrigued to see that they have Moroccan hummus, which must be news to the Moroccans. But let me just say the 
region of the Middle East which seems to have contributed the most to this um, items in the globalized uh, Middle Eastern food seems to be this area which is also known as Eastern Mediterranean, you know, the area around Anatolia, southeastern Anatolia, plus the Arab Levant, what we call Bilad al-Sham, the Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, plus uh, Cyprus. Cyprus is part of this. And so, in fact, that is the area from which so many of the items, including the ubiquitous hummus, uh, including the various salads and the pastries, the lahmajoon, the, all these items that are now so common uh, are uh, predominantly from this region, which in terms of ethnicity is quite diverse. So in fact, in the, this part, you have Turks and Arabs and Greeks and Armenians and Kurds. And so uh, this is one reason why on the globalized stage, you have um, claims to nationality of foods, you know, what is Armenian and what is Turkish. And of course, this is quite irrelevant because in actual fact, it is geography rather than ethnicity. It's that region that contributed all these items. And that region is ethnically diverse. And it's impossible to say, uh, you know, which is which is which in terms of ethnicity. Of course, the other areas, which are, of course, very important gastronomically, particularly Iran, I mean, that seems to be spreading less uh, prominently, but uh, very definitely. And, you know, the vogue for Persian cooking is much less known, but where it is known, it's highly, highly valued and uh, uh, very interesting. And the other thing, of course, is Egypt. Where does Egypt come in into this variety of uh, the, the regions? And I know, Claudia, you've done most to bring Egypt into the equation. But then, apart from that, there is very little spread uh, or knowledge of Egyptian food. Uh, koshari, which is an adopted Egyptian street food, is now becoming uh, more known, nothing like hummus and... and... Uh, yes, I mean, I think why uh, you did mention Cyprus, and perhaps it is through Cyprus that a lot of the things first came to Britain, because Cyprus, of course, was a British colony for a long time, longer than elsewhere. Uh, but also, when I first came to, to London or to Britain, uh, the only place where you could buy anything Middle Eastern was a Cypriot cafe or a Cypriot grocery. Yeah. We had to go to Kentish Town, to Camden Town, to get them there. And they became the manufacturers. In fact, I remember being invited by uh, or asked by, um, by Marks and Spencer to come and taste different varieties of hummus that that their manufacturer was, was making for them. And uh, it was many years ago. It was the first hummus that appeared in supermarket. And I went there to taste and the manufacturer was there and he turned out to be Cypriot. But all the people working in the factory were Bangladeshi women. Uh, but uh, so, uh, when I went, I said, well, you know, I'm not used to buying it ready-made because I make it myself. But I have a cousin who says 
the hummus of waiters is better than the hummus of Marx and Spencer. And this manufacturer said, I make it for waiters as well. <laughs> so mm -hmm. yes, the first restaurants that opened that were Middle Eastern were Lebanese. And they, were, they started opening at the time of the Lebanese Civil War. And so their uh, groceries started opening then. Uh, so you can see that all kinds of things that have happened, politically maybe, it is the manufacturers of a certain area or the people of a certain area who migrate and become cooks and chefs. Now I'm hearing there's a lot of cooks coming that are Syrian. These kinds of things actually create what, what becomes the thing that sells. I think on the Lebanese, uh, you know, why the Lebanese are so prominent, and they were even before the civil war, there is a, I don't know how important it is, but there is a historical factor there, which is, first of all, the countries or cities in which there was a public drinking culture, or much more likely to have restaurants. So in fact, whereas, you know, places like Iraq, where I come from originally, public eating was traditionally mostly just markets and market stalls, and where the drinking dens, the mechana, were more or less hidden. You didn't develop a restaurant culture in the way in which the Levantine Mediterranean cities, particularly the Lebanese, but also the, the par parts of Turkey, Istanbul, and the Aegean, had developed a drinking culture which was very important in the starting of restaurants. And the other thing, of course, about the Arab Levant is the diaspora, which started, of course, much earlier than the Civil War. The migrations of Syrian, Lebanese, Palestinians to North and South America uh, and to Africa yeah. uh, was an important part of spreading the um, food cultures into, into these variety of areas. And to think about Greeks and Cypriots uh, in London, I remember even earlier on, you know, the only place where you could get Middle Eastern ingredients in London was the Hellenic provision stores on Charlotte Street, where we used to make special pilgrimage there every now and again, especially if you were from outside London. Uh, so in fact, we've come a long way since then. Thank you, Sammy. Claudia, this is, this is wonderful. It's super to hear you scan across the region and, and time like this. I wonder, might you take the conversation on to discussion of how food and identity and politics intertwine? What can I say? It's um, If you are just uh, sitting somewhere in Syria or Iraq or what have you, you know, you may think about your food as against that of your neighbors or of uh, one city as against another. But the idea of national cuisines is very, if it's there at all, it's very underdeveloped. So it's really only in the centers of um, migration and the centers of uh, travel. And it's only in these contexts that uh, you start talking about whose food is it. The question of national cuisine uh, is a phenomenon of globalization, of migration, of diasporas. Uh, to say uh, of any particular items like Lahmajun, is it Armenian? Is it Armenians, of course, were 
famous cooks and they were prominent in the catering businesses. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily indicate that particular dishes are ethnically specific to them. And so uh, this is, you know, the point that I'm making is that geography is more important than ethnicity. But then in the uh, in the diasporic and global stage, uh, nationality and ethnicity uh, becomes a point of contention in relation to the ownership of foods and culinary cultures. Thank you, Sami. Claudia, might you like to develop that perhaps with reference to, I know you've written about the continuity and, and also the transformation of dishes over time, which you've traced back historically um, in the records. I mean, for example, writings from the 13th century, which you, you might link to a tagine today or, you know, yes. the development of the korma, these kind of ideas. Would you like to expand yes. through that? Yes. But I think I'd like to add also to what Sammy is saying now, that there is some anger in some countries because their products are being sold by another country. And so it's a financial thing. For instance, well, the Palestinians feel robbed of their dishes. They feel robbed by Israeli chefs at the moment. And Lebanese feel robbed by Israel because Israel sells more hummus abroad. But yes, there is also some strong feeling. And some countries that neglected their own cuisine have become very concerned with holding on to what they feel is their real cuisine. The people just didn't go out to eat. But now eating out is a very important thing, especially for tourism. And you see in Turkey, there are chefs who are researching what they had ignored uh, until now, their regional cuisines and refining them, bringing them up to date, creating a sophisticated kind of haute cuisine in Morocco, you find restaurants and grand hotels and in Riyadh, they are putting the kind of home dishes, the grand celebratory dishes, the one that they used to have for weddings, for instance, they are putting them on their menus. There is uh, something happening there where people want to find what is the best of their own cuisine in the countries itself. Now you're asking me, yes, about the discovery by myself when I first went to the British Library looking for uh, Arab cookbooks. And that was 60 years ago when uh, the Jews had left Egypt after Suez and where we were looking for recipes because there had been no cookbooks. Well, at the British Library, there were no contemporary cookbooks on Arab food. And all the librarian had to show me were those 13th century cookbooks that were found in Baghdad, in um, Damascus, in, uh, in uh, the Maghreb, in Spain, actually, but in Arabic. I really, started cooking, I was absolutely enthralled and I started cooking constantly 
from those old books. And I was enthralled because many of the dishes that were mentioned were had similar names, similar combinations of ingredients, of spices. The recipes that I was collecting from people leaving Egypt at the time. I was hearing from people who had come from Morocco, from Tunisia, and I found so much that was in those books that, for instance, in Baghdad, in, the, in a book or rather essays from Maxime Rodinson, where he described dishes in Damascus in the 13th century, I found a lot that my family actually cooked. So I really felt that we must be going back a long way if a dish we still ate or were mentioned in Damascus. And I'm saying this because my family or three of my grandparents actually came from Aleppo. Well, um, yes, there may be continuities, but there are also some very important discontinuities. Of course, one of the most important episodes that lead to discontinuities is uh, what we call the Colombian Exchange. All the foods that came from America after the 15th century, and some of them didn't get there till much later. And notably the tomato. I mean, they had no tomatoes until some places from the 18th century in the Middle East, and some places like Baghdad, which was a bit backwards, not until the early 20th century. So can you imagine Middle Eastern food without tomatoes? Uh, apart from tomatoes, there's also peppers and chilies. Then, you know, you have, uh, of course, the fasolia, the uh, haricot beans, corn, the whole gamut of potatoes, all the things that came from the Americas, which uh, revolutionized uh, the uh, culinary cultures of the old world, including the Mediterranean and the Middle East. The other thing, of course, is there are so many dishes that are mentioned in these, what Claudia referred to, the medieval manuals uh, of cookery, which have disappeared or reappeared somewhere else in a different guise, or names for foods. The words uh, survived, uh, but the foods did not. Uh, one in interesting one is uh, Borani, or Borani, which occurs in uh, Abbasid cooking, referring to an aubergine dish. And now you have Borani uh, in various uh, countries, you know, from Iran to Yugoslavia, but it designates many different uh, dishes, uh, primarily, or in Iran, for instance, it's a dish of spinach uh, and yogurt. I think one of my favorite examples in this respect of the continuity, discontinuity, is a dish in, from Abbasid times, which was called sikbaj. Sikbaj was meat that had been boiled, cooked in vinegar and sweetened with honey with a variety of spices, including saffron. Now, this dish percolates down and, you know, even poor people use it, especially maritime communities use it with fish, you know, fish cooked or kept in vinegar. And, but it disappears from Middle Eastern cookery. But then it appears in a different guise in Spain when you have escabeche which is again fish that is 
uh, cooked or kept in vinegar. And of course, that spreads also in the rest of Europe, Escabeche in France, uh, and many other uh, examples of it. So here we have kind of discontinuity in one place and reappearance in different guises, but with the, that label in other places. Then you have the words, you know, things like kebab. Uh, kebab is an Arabic word, and I traced uh, the word kebab uh, even in the Abbasid writer uh, Al-Jahiz, who has a wonderful book called Kitab al-Bukhala, the book of misers. It's a humorous book about all the ruses and habits of miserly people. And of course, they are miserly predominantly with food. And at one point, he uses the word kebab as a verb in which he says, and they made it a kebab over the fire. And here he is referring to fish uh, that was made like that. But the word kebab as a generic thing did not appear till much later. Uh, what the, the grilled meats, they were called shua, uh, which means grilled. What I'm saying is uh, that, you know, there may be some continuities. And of course, one of the issues of continuities is the cooking pots. And the cooking pots, of course, and the sources of fire and the sources of cooking were very different at different points. You know, you had a lot of technical innovations. And uh, so in fact, all these have led to definite discontinuities in the culinary uh, traditions and the dishes that came there. That was wonderful. Really, really fascinating. Yeah. Thank you, Sammy. Claudia, thank you so much too. Sadly, we are running out of time. I wish we could go on. But before I let you go, I wonder if I have to take the opportunity to ask two such distinguished food writers to give us perhaps one favourite recipe or dish. One recipe that was given to me by my sister-in-law's grandmother was an almond and orange cake that now has become famous all over the world. It's not my particularly favorite one, but it, I'll give it as what is uh, unusual is that two oranges are boiled until they're very soft. And then uh, the pips are removed, they're cut open, and they're blended with eggs and sugar and almonds. And that is all it is. And you pour it into, into a cake tin and you bake it. And it is, you just, it really is all over the world. Uh, when I went to even to India, to Mumbai Literary Festival, several people were saying they were cooking it there. And certainly it became in Australia, every single recipe, a restaurant that was fashionable had it on the menu. And uh, well, sort of strange things happen. Yes, that's remarkable. <laughs> and thank you. Sammy, is, is there one dish or one recipe you care to share? Well, uh, yeah, if I choose one, which I like particularly, is from my home background in Baghdad, dish called kitchri, which is really Indian in origin, but uh, was quite common uh, among Baghdadi Jews. It was eaten once a week on Thursday, which for some reason was a non-meat day. And the kitchri was non-meat, was eaten with butter and yogurt, which otherwise would be forbidden in, in Jewish ritual. And kitchri is rice and lentils, 
which had been boiled with a little bit of tomato paste. And then you fry garlic and cumin in butter uh, and pour it over this combination. And then you serve it hot when you melt more, more butter into it and you eat it with a yogurt sauce. Sometimes, you know, to make it even more dairy, uh, you have fried cubes of cheese, you know, halloumi type cheese, which is also garnished and onions, which are also fried and put on top. And that is one of my favorite dishes, which I still uh, cook here. I adapt it. I don't, I cook it in a different way. And of course, that's also, it came from India. And it's also the basis of the very popular koshari in Egypt. That's a lovely example. Terrific. I think Rabal and I are getting rather hungry listening to this. <laughs> well inspired. Thank you. Savi, Claudia, thank you so much. You've been so generous uh, with your time and, and your thoughts. It's, it's been wonderful having you on the podcast. Um, I hope we can see you next year in person and, and eat some real food together. That would be wonderful. But thank you for your time today. It's yep. a great pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you, Sammy and Claudia, for taking the time to speak to us. And thank you, as always, for tuning in. We hope you enjoy the holidays and we look forward to seeing you again in 2021 with a whole new season of Instant Coffee.